This is Fintech Cappuccino, your Saturday morning podcast with a pinch of espresso on the why and how of Fintech. The show is hosted by Brian van Wachem, CEO of RedSnap, and I'm Connie Dorstein, founding partner of Bankify. Met Connie. Morning, Connie. How's life? Um, great. I'm actually in a bit of a pensive mood right now. Really? How come? Um... It just feels as we're on the cusp of this new stage in fintech. We're preparing, I'm reading, and so many people I I meet talk about it. They say like it's almost like there's an end of an era and and, and back to business feel. Do you recognize this? I do actually. In fact, I have an idea. Let's do a deep dive on the topic. I happen to know the global lead on this at McKinsey. Hmm, that sounds good. Let's do a deep dive on the state of fintech today. Let's do it. I'm on it. It'll be. Bye. Bye. Around 10 years ago, the fintech movement took off in earnest, painting new horizons for financial services around the world based on technology-centric products and services. The stages were full of promises of customer centricity and money was flowing from VCs into the pockets of fintech entrepreneurs. Sky high were the promises and predictions, for software would eat the world and the incumbent banks insurers in the process. 10 years on, banks were having a great year at the time when fintech were falling on hard times. Incubators are turned into innovation programs and the sneakers are going back in the box. Recently, a bank CEO was even told by his chairman to stop babbling about purpose and ecosystems. Is it all back to square one? In this podcast, we will find out what is happening in reality, based on facts and deep insights for fintech has undeniably changed the world for good. Miklas Dietz of McKinsey spends his entire life around these core questions. What is the role and impact of fintech? He's our guest today. Welcome, Miklos Dietz. So close, no matter how far, couldn't be much more from the heart. Forever trust in who we are, and nothing else matters. Welcome, uh, Nikos. Uh, we're delighted to have you here. Why did you choose this music on a Saturday morning? Well, I'm a child of the 1970s and 80s. I was born behind the Iron Curtain in Hungary. And uh, hard rock and heavy metal was considered to be dangerous, illegal Western influence. So, of course, we all listen to it. It's just in spite. But to be honest, I'm also a fan of classical music. And I think this combination is impossible to resist. I can put myself in a trance uh, when I'm writing books or articles frequently. I'll just listen to this music. Ah, great. And, and what do you normally do on a Saturday morning, Miklos? <laughs> uh, very boring. I'm a glorified chauffeur. I'm driving my kids to rock climbing, fencing, sailing, and waiting for them in the car or just walking around and listening to podcasts. <laughs> All right. Family man. Dr. Miklos Dietz, CFA, is the leader of the Cross-Industrial Global Ecosystems Group and the Global Banking Strategy and Innovation Group at McKinsey. Since joining the firm in 2001, he has specialized in strategy, business building and innovation topics, and he has led over 450 projects in 40 plus countries. Miklos is also the chairman of Panorama, the flagship banking research center based in London, Budapest and New Delhi, 
responsible for mapping the banking universe from market sizing to disruption modeling, from startups to leading global institutions. This makes him our ideal partner today for an unbiased but compassionate discussion on the state of fintech 10 years on. So, uh, Miklos, welcome again. You are clearly one of the fintech leaders of McKinsey, so let's dive in immediately. So, we estimate that the fintech movement started roughly 10 years ago. And um, if you concur to that, uh, in your view, what was actually the promise or the expectations back then? Or in other words, why did this movement come up anyway? So, um, it's always hard to put an exact date on these type of things, right? There has been innovative, technology-driven financial service disruptors 20, 30, 40 years ago, and we were always tracking them in McKinsey. But you are absolutely right that something has happened around a decade ago where certain changes reached critical mass. On one end, technology transformation, lowering cost of computing, cost of data, even more slow, just reached a level when the barrier of entry went down. On the other side, customer expectations uh, started to go really up, driven by non-financial sector factors, people basically getting used to the technology platform services from Amazon to Netflix and just increasingly demanding it at their banking. A third element was uh, regulation post the great financial crisis created huge burden on banks, which kind of slowed them down and made them even less competitive in some areas. And these, the constellation of these factors altogether led to an explosion of these players, underlining by, of course, capital, which was flowing in. And the reason why capital is flowing in because of the sheer size of the banking sector. Banking is the largest or the second largest industry in the world, depending on how you classify healthcare. It's a even 10 years ago, it was already a $5 trillion yeah. uh, revenue pool with an over trillion dollar profit pool. It was run by, by a very fragmented landscape of 60,000 plus global financial institutions. Most of them were old school. Most of them have enormous legacy technology. Most of them heavily regulated and operating in a slowly moving world. It is the mother of all disruption. So, of course, everybody got very excited and said, wow, if we make so much money on previous, we disrupted media, which is, you know, one-tenth of the side. We disrupted advertising, which is one-tenth of the side. Imagine if we disrupt this. Now, of course, situation turned out to be more complicated. Yeah, but because if we're looking back now, let's look back from now and look back 10 years, I mean, the disruption, I mean, what did they really accomplish? So that's very interesting. I would argue in some way, not a lot, and in other ways, quite a lot. At the beginning of this with a colleague of mine, we actually wrote an article about this like 10 or 11 years ago. It's cutting through the noise. It was an early article about the noise. And what we basically argued is that we are not expecting uh, most of the fintechs of that wave to really survive as an independent company. And we are not expecting them to take enormous market share in terms of banking volumes, but we are expecting them to significantly affect banking margins by forcing and accelerating competition. And we are expecting them to significantly influence customer needs. What we also argued 
and I would argue fintechs are doing is the effect is very uneven in different banking businesses. Banking, first and foremost, has a really low, if you look at the, by now it's closer to $6 trillion banking revenue pool around 60% of banking revenues, but only 40% of profits come from this classical, boring, running the balance sheet, doing the financial transformation, asset liability management, owning big, again, we are speaking about $180 trillion of total balance sheet in the world net. That is the boring one. That's a 6% ROA business or five. It's actually destroying shareholder value. And then there is this other part of banking around it, which uh, is most of the profit, although not most of the revenues, which runs at over 20% ROA, which is all the distribution part, the asset man- wealth management, the payments, everything which is not directly connected to owning balance sheet. And what fintechs really did smartly they actually came in, and by didn't disrupt the overarching scale in the trillion scale, they did cherry pick areas of very high margin when there were huge uh, customer dissatisfaction and unserved needs. Let me give you an example: international transfers. Right? Yep. That is yep. in the totality, and when when people make the pro the anti fintech argument oh fintech is just a noise they always point out to gigantic balance sheets but if you look at for example that specific sector that was a highly profitable sector to some banks quite a lot of banks and to some non bank players right and they really lost market share to the next generation who is offering a very differentiated the extra nuance is also where when did uh, how the impact of fintech is also very different geography by geography a lot of people tend to look at this from a very classical Western, especially U.S. perspective. And we need to realize, we need to realize that the U.S. is actually leading the world in almost all areas. The U.S. is definitely not leading the world when it comes to banking services. Ask ask anyone who just moved recently from the U.S. to from anywhere, and I'm not just speaking about those who moved from Scandinavia, but those who moved from China, India, Turkey, Poland, it's stepping back to the Middle Ages elongated process of mortgage openings, almost nothing. You have to go to a branch to do things, which is shocking. Again, it's shocking to Central Europeans. It's shocking to South Africans. The, and as a consequence, of course, the US had a very different type of fintech disruption, but it, it was very, it's more niche to go after the sectors. If you go to places like Africa, on the other hand, where there was enormous leapfrogging opportunity, fintechs uh, really transformed the world much more. If you go to China and Eastern Asia, there are some markets when fintechs, and of course, big tech as well, really transformed the world. Look at how much of not just payment industry, but also consumer lending, small business financing, even savings that move to players like and financial and widget and that that was of course before some regulatory moves yeah, yeah. now I, I totally concur with that and i remember in 19 sort of 1998 i think it was i organized the first what we then called it virtual finance uh, virtual finance tours to south africa because they were so leapfrogging the current system with their internet banking and you'd go to a bank and they demonstrate uh, innovation and i remember getting a, a browser on a cd and i felt so incredible because suddenly I could go onto the internet and explore the internet. So I totally concur with you. And and so indeed, the banking landscape in the US is quite antiquated, but they're very um, much still leading very often when it comes to sort of new technologies. So if we concede that, you know, this disruption has been there and has not been there, 
you already said yourself, you know, uh, the new technologies were there, the time was right. Which technologies do you reckon will really help us disrupt the banking scene in the years to come? Wow, these are brilliant questions. I, it's very hard to give like a one sentence answer. What I, oh, what I, you have time. Take your time. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So first and foremost, I believe that the fintech wave is moving to its first, almost like naive phase to the next more mature and thoughtful one. So I think answer number one: do not try to disrupt everything. Again, the success of the fintech movement should not be measured based on trillions of dollars of balance sheet or necessarily even revenues. The success of the fintech movement should be measured on its overall impact on customer service levels, margins, and so on. It is also, I think, in this aspect, the smart strategy for fintechs to go after unserved segments. It is such a gigantic industry that you can be very, very successful if you just pinpoint, go after a segment, serve them. A very important point, though, and we can speak about this a bit later. I don't think the next wave of fintech needs to be just fintech. Banking is undergoing an even bigger change than fintech, and that's the platformization of banking or the barriers of breaking down between industries. Parallel to the fintech transformation, bank is also facing challenge from non-banks, from big retailers, tech companies, because the traditional barriers between sectors went down. You know, banking distribution advantages like branches went away, banking data advantages gone away. There are retailers or telcos who can build better Gini coefficients from their lending, right? And the solution also to fintechs to realize that ultimately most customers don't really have financial needs. They have nobody wants to have a mortgage. Everybody wants to have a home. Mortgage is just a necessary tool. Nobody wants to do a payment. Everybody wants to buy stuff. Just you know, give me yeah, the we payment. have life so needs. I think the real next generation sophisticated fintech strategy, don't just start with a financial service, start with a more end-to-end customer journey. Try to differentiate, not just by offering a better, cheaper, more digital product, which will be harder and harder because the, 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 the big banks are not at all standing still, right? They are investing technology. And I, I want to, uh, hoping we can speak about that well. They have very consistent and measurable competitive advantages versus fintechs, for example, cross-selling. But what these players can do, come in, create convenient end-to-end journeys, be very, very customer-focused, capture the customer at multiple points, and then what type of technologies you need for that. I'm a bit cautious of being beating the drum for any one specific technology, Almost all individual... What intrigues you? <laughs> well, there are a lot of things which intrigues me. My argument is that in all of these individual technologies, banks can actually outcompete purely on a technology level. And the reason why fintechs win is rarely because they are just five, 10 years ahead of technology. Usually they are ahead much more on customer-focused thinking. I do believe that there are transformative technologies coming. My personal belief is for example, that after seeing 15 years of investing to digital without truly measurable productivity improvement, right? Digital basically almost like added to the cost, and especially in North America, because you can you can pinpoint to, to Scandinavia where you actually start to see like really drastic cost efficiency improvement. But in North America, that maybe not, not happened yet. But the next wave of technologies such as generative AI, for example, can lead to the real holy grail of banking, which is automation. Because everybody gets excited about new interfaces, but new interfaces with customers don't necessarily change the business model. However, 
if you really think about the future of banking of the banking sector, it's moving data. Banking at its very heart is a business of moving ones and zeros, right? It's moving bits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Currently, it does it in an incredibly inefficient way. If you calculate cost per gigabit of transfer versus any other industry, telcos, retailers, banking is an extremely costly. Of course, it's regulation, but it's also legacy systems. There is no question that the future of banking is to try to move this money, manage this information asymmetry in a much smoother way with uh, more machines, less people, and readjust its workforce and its people base to more be client-focused, serve actual client needs, step outside of just core banking system, advise clients better. In this wave of transformation, fintechs have an advantage because, of course, they can be very customer-focused, but they will not necessarily win on the level of automations because they already start automated, while uh, big banks have like a bigger improvement opportunity because they are starting behind. So my argument of fintechs, in general, don't try to win in technology. There are very few technologies with the global banking system, which coincidentally the single biggest IT spender sector by a margin of uh, more than 2x. Banks will never fall behind on tech. They have amazing tech people. Banks, fintechs, opportunity versus banks is to beat them on being the focus on customer needs, being fast moving, being agile. And I think that's a very healthy competition for both sectors. I honestly think that both banks and fintechs are coming out of dinners. It's very traditional to put the two of them into an opposite camp. But I actually think that ultimately they are helping each other. They are forcing each other to evolve. And also they are partnering more and more. My vision about this next mature wave of fintech will be much more bank and fintech partnership. Ultimately, fintechs enable banks to outsource innovation risks, <laughs> share the returns. Yeah. Anyway, long answer. Yeah. No, 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 long answer. And 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 I, I agree with you. And you and and this uh, your your entire uh, statement on this equally, I think, also um, covers the retail market as much as the B2B in the corporate market. Eh? Because the, so far, fintechs are very often focused on the retail side. But there is so much to gain from giving, you know, CFOs, uh, uh, you know, an, an even good insight as consumers do. Yeah. Actually, I, I would actually... Challenge you a little bit. We have built around 11 years ago when we started to track the fintech transformation. We have built a database of all fintechs we were following, which was not, of course, all of them, but thousands of them were in and we spent a lot of time. We had very talented young interns who were tracking them, trying to understand how they work. And when we built this database, we were surprised to find even then that almost a majority, like some 45% of all fintechs in the database were already B2B. Oh, very good. What happened is that actually, and now I absolutely agree with you. Now this wave is actually even more B2B. There is a measurable shift toward that. It is just that the B2C was always the visible, the exciting. Exactly. The top of the newspapers. It's always more exciting to say, oh, fintechs are here to kill banks than to say a more nuanced statement. Well, the fintech sector is here to create um, incremental innovation here and there to help the whole banking system to spread innovation cost more and evolve together. That's that's yeah. not exactly an exciting headline, right? Doesn't sound the same. Doesn't sound the same. <laughs> but, but 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 a little bit back on the um, on the business 
models and mixlabs because I, I I hear what you say. So basically, if the fintechs will focus on uh, let's call it customer intimacy or lifestyle or customer journeys, they can do that probably better than the banks. So where does it leave the banks? So I think. Uh in this stage of evolution, first and foremost, I don't believe that banks cannot serve customer needs. In that database I mentioned, when we started it, it was our fintech database. And then we realized, hey, by the way, there are a bunch of banking innovations also we should add here because they are so shattering. I mean, again, mainly not from the US, to be very honest. But look at some of what some of the Scandinavian banks are doing amazing. Look at some one of some of the Korean, Australian, Turkish, Polish banks are doing amazing. And this- Give us an example. Give us an example, Miklos. I mean... Let me give you examples. There are banks from, I just use the last two countries, like Turkey and Poland, because nobody cares about them, but they are actually some of the most advanced banking markets in the world, even though otherwise they are middle-income countries with their own problems. Poland is is a market when you have actually seen one bank starting a mobile bank, which became so successful that eventually they merged the existing bank, it was called Bre, into this new bank called MBank. And it became the first bank who really not just build a new business model but eventually got dissolved into it and migrated into the new platform the very same bank already 10 years ago realized hey i can't just win on payments right i have to introduce they introduced coupons vouchers personalized offers they transformed the consumer finance business into an e-marketplace there are dozens of other banks by the way from even places like OTP in Hungary, but banks from Canada, banks from Australia who have been doing this in the meantime. Banks are, for example, very good. Not all banks, but some banks can be very good transforming their multi-million dollar customer based on credit card and consumer lending, connecting, bringing in partners and building tools and assets that enable people to do almost like shopping journeys. As I mentioned, coupons, location-based services, vouchers, e-gifting, e-marketplace, so that's one area of and traditional banks are actually better than fintechs, right? Because fintechs don't have millions of customer base. And this is the idea of translating or existing millions. Another one when banks are running the show is small business banking, building a small building a gateway to small and even medium-sized businesses, offering not just banking, but also telecom services, administrative, HR, all of these things in one big box. Again, it's easier for large banks to do that. And again, this is something which typically happens outside of North America at this stage, or at least outside of the US, because it's actually happening in Canada. There are some very interesting, one Canadian bank rolled out a tool for startups, for example, which enables startups to do everything from business registry to website design to banking in one box. And it's a runaway success, right? That's owner from RBC. So there are examples of that. This is typically areas where big banks can work better because it's leveraging their scale, cutting across multiple sectors, using their customer base. Where fintechs have an advantage is going after a niche, more niche, unserved need, such as historically was the international transfers. Go after subcategory of people. It's also very important, a profitable need because the In the naive era, people were building fintechs with the hope of eventually making money, right? I think right now in this mature era of fintechs, investors are looking for a business model which actually leads to profitability at a reasonably faster time, right? Nobody wants to just give money to get traffic. So how do you do that? You identify profitable products. Fintechs can build more end-to-end customer journeys more narrowly going after a segment, uh, 
fintechs can also, again, as I said, partner with banks and non-banks and just coming in. I mean, one of the most efficient next generation fintech model is just to find a model how you can help retailers or other access to big customers to match what bankings are doing. What banking so yeah. It's quite interesting, actually, because um, I've been on uh, the very American BAI innovation jury uh, for the last number of years. And we've had years when not a single bank was, a US bank was winning. And the, the banks you were mentioning from Turkey and Poland were always on the uh, on the list. They were taking a lot of the t- trophies away. <laughs> so let's hope they inspire the Americans. Now, and, and here is... Um, a very different topic, uh, but one very close to Brian and my heart. Um, we always ask our guests in this weekend mode to step a little bit away from their brand and give us a private view. Miklos, we did a podcast, you might have heard it, on kleptocracy with the author of Moneyland two years ago. And um, for Bella, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. And if anything, you know, this issue seems to worsen. What is your take on this and how can we solve this as a you know, society? Because we seem to throw more regulation at it. But at the same time, this whole idea of people stashing money away in money land and, and sort of not giving it back to society becomes worse and worse. Do you have any view on this? Wow, I have a lot. So, so first and foremost, stepping back, if you don't mind, a little bit more on the historical and almost philosophical levels. I think there is a major, major misunderstanding of the impact of the global banking sector in history. Prior to the discovery of banking sector, the world has been insanely inequal and inefficient because basically what happened, less than 1% of the population had the capital. They're typically living in nice castles or, you know, whether it's in Japan or in uh, Europe. 99% of the people, you could have the most talented future innovator, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. They, If you if you are born as a peasant, you know, you, you will die as a peasant. There was zero ability, even for rich people to get loans and invest into productivity. As a consequence, the world has been running on a 0.1% to 0.2% GDP per capita growth for like extended periods. Yeah, very long time. Banking, what banking sector did is, I would say, the single biggest social good apart from maybe large-scale medicine. It enabled the movement of capital from those who have it to those who need it. It created middle class. By creating middle class, it created the revolution of push towards education, towards middle class rights. It did actually even more. It created the rule-based international system because banking only works when there is peace. And by the way, we tend to forget that. Uh, I don't know if you will have time on this. I think there is another part of this naive era of financial sectors is we never consider the fact that not peace and international movement is not always guaranteed. The banking system almost enforced a rule-based international system. So I would first and foremost argue that there are very few sectors who has done as much for increasing equality, yeah. increasing shift of money, and building the middle class and the upper middle class, starting, and of course, in the Anglo-Saxon countries, but really spreading everywhere. And banking enables now that a very large part of the human population have access to credit. And even if you look at the last decades, when you say, well, certainly there are a lot of dark side of uh, banking stories, but even in the last two decades or three decades, look at what banking has done from micro lending to easy access to finance to move billions out in emerging markets from poverty. Uh, So I would first and foremost argue that banking's social impact imbalance over centuries is very, very positive. It's very positive. Having said that, I absolutely agree that the very same banking system 
And, uh, you know, I started my career in investment banking, so I have seen that. And th- there is a reason why I switched to consulting. I, I feel it's much more of a... <laughs> comp- I used to work on Wall Street. I feel like I'm in a much more positive karma world right now. Banking has failings. It fails to serve uh, lower-income people. Just to give, especially in the U.S., we have done some statistics. Really high-income rich people spend around one and a half to two percent of their income on banking. Low-income people spend as much as seven. Right? Yeah. Banking has products which are. I mean, my favorite example is credit cards. Look at what really happens with credit cards. Poor people who are in revolving credit are essentially cross-financing rich people who can always pay back in time. Yeah. Now, does it mean that banks are wrong to offer these products? No, they produce products. There is customer demand and need for it. But there are there is certainly a lot of areas. On capital markets, banking lives, live out of information asymmetry. And it, there are conflicts of interest. So I think there is an issue. Bank regulation. Should not be should not be underestimated. I, my worry is a little bit that regulation in the past have been much more focused on the systemic risk created by balance sheets and less focused on issues like customer right. Yeah, and yeah, equality. So, so you you would almost argue that that kleptocracy is almost like an issue for governments to take and and worry about than banks. I argue that kleptocracy came across the very moment we created any type of surplus anywhere, which was around uh, yeah. 8,500 years BC in Northern Iraq, when we discovered agriculture. The moment we discovered agriculture, we created extreme inequality, kleptocracy, and a few people, whether you can call them the priests of Endic or the priests of Ra in Egypt, or you can call them the <laughs> you can call them uh, kings or... The House of Burgundy, yeah, exactly. all of them. So kleptocracy <laughs> unfortunately exists because because human productivity varies, the measurability of human productivity varies. Uh, these teachers create more social value than, let's say, investment bankers, necess- or at least certainly comparable. They don't get paid the same, right? Yeah. This type of inequality is a systemic result of organized labor, complex society. Banking, on balance, have helped in that by reducing it. Banking can, of course, also reinforce that and uh, create inequality. The solution, I think, is pretty thoughtful, segment by segment, more niche transformation of the sector. But the solution is also just competition. The more competition you have, the better. Yeah. Now, I can already... I can already hear that we need to invite you for a next podcast on one of my favorite topics, which is history and finance. So, you know, that's what we're going to do more in the next podcast. Another one. I heard you said the word already, um, Miklos, the word karma. And this is what I always wanted to ask to, uh, I've got many friends within McKinsey. So McKinsey is historically good with, with the rational and analytical side, right? To explain complex reality and put this reality into models to create insights and rational decisions, correct? We like to think More or less. Uh, we now see a trend to also embrace the more philosophical and soft side of the human brain into business, right? So Eastern mystics like yoga and Tai Chi and meditation have taken a firm seat into our lives. So is there an eye or even room within McKinsey for intuitive decision-making? And if yes, how can you model that or how do you put that into your models? Mm-hmm. Wow, this is a brilliant question, and I I don't necessarily want to answer in the name of McKinsey, but I can tell no, you personal. I can yeah. tell you two things. 
first and foremost, and again, this is me coming from investment banking to consulting. So you can say that this is, you know, maybe everything is relative. To me, moving to consulting 22 years ago, one of the most positive surprises was how value-oriented and broad-impact-oriented this industry is. And again, that's my personal view. Compared to investment banking, we were a machine, money was flowing through, buys, sells, recommendations. The basic... uh, Consulting by design always goes deeper into topics. When you go deeper into topics, you encounter a very broad set of stakeholders. Yes, you you use analytics, but uh, that's only one way of thinking. In fact, my biggest learning in my consulting career is everything what looks like numbers and finance is just the surface. Ultimately, the goal of business and the goal of consulting especially is to change how people think. Your impact, the way you help your clients is is not to show them how smart you are by creating Excel powers and big PowerPoint charts. It's to work with them, advise them, and enable them to come up with new ideas, change the way how they are thinking about things. That has never been purely rational. Also, in a broader sense, McKinsey, we spend a lot of time on thinking about what we call the holistic impact. Then we do projects, and of course, we are also learning, right? This is an evolution within McKinsey. Just, uh, when we are doing projects, especially now, we are looking and measuring our holistic impact. Our holistic impact is not just on shareholders, but on employees or climate, on broader, broader social impact. All the projects I'm most passionate about are projects where we actually have created broad social impact across uh, countries. All the things which... If you speak to an average consultant and say, hey, tell us your five favorite projects, you will be shocked to see that every single one of them have somehow created value beyond just money to, you know, enabling lower income people to get access to banking. Or even one of my favorites were when we changed compensation and we enabled people in a very low to middle income country to suddenly bankers were able to get variable salary and they started to make more money and the bank also these type of win-win situations i think that's 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 what creates passion and energy and excitement into consulting yeah. well the one thing you're definitely not lacking uh, is passion which is great for guests at the weekend because we all want to go away and think hmm i'm gonna check out this but he's told us about you know history banking and how it opened up you know how it actually sort of democratizes us all Anyway, but we need to get to a sort of a rounding off. And, and uh, you know, our regular guests are always looking for some sort of quick lessons or quick lessons or even hints to think, uh, as you say, to make them look differently at the issues they face on a daily basis. So if you imagine people are listening to you and, I, you know, take me as an example, I've listened to you, I've had a lot of fun talking to you. What three things would you give me to as a takeaway to mull over over the weekend and that I can maybe do something with on Monday? Oh wow. Maybe maybe number one would be do not think about banking as an in, as a standalone sector. Financial services there are fundamental human needs. None of them, maybe with the exception of like, a little bit of fun of just long-term investment, but most fundamental human needs only touch the banking sector. One can truly create, whether you are a bank or a fintech, you can truly create lasting impact if you actually serve a fundamental need. And that requires customer journeys beyond just banking. 
right? It, 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 it liberates you. It enables you to differentiate. It enables you to create deep, also this positive karma point. You can, it's, it's like really the win, win, win. If you can step out of the traditional industry box. Yeah. The second point I would make is think about is think about collaboration. Banks in, in markets where I see the banking sector doing best and markets where banks and fintechs collaborate, let's say Scandinavia, I raised this example a couple of times. There is a reason why in Scandinavia, the financial sector is truly high efficiency digital, but was also able to push back on big tech and other challenges. It's because they collaborate. Collaboration, underestimated. This is a much more complex universe. Banks don't just compete with each other. They compete against with other sectors. And again, banks, banks and fintechs are natural best friends. And yes, they can still compete and cooperate at the same time. And my third kind of recommendation would be for anyone who is looking into this sector, just realize how big, diverse, rich, and in many, many aspects, very positive uh, this sector is. Most people tend to simplify down banking. And by doing that, you lose a lot of the nuances and a lot of the opportunities. I'm very optimistic, especially in the US banking, how much the US banking sector can evolve, because simply I can just compare it what happens in everywhere else. Yes, US is unique. But if there are dozens of other countries, when you can get a mortgage in one to two days, if there are, if in almost all countries in the world, you can transfer from any person to any person in money in minutes, milliseconds. If most countries you can get a loan in two minutes, eventually it's going to happen. And that transformation of the US banking system, still the biggest or the second biggest in the world, depending on how you measure, will be fascinating, transformative, will have a huge positive effect. So I think whoever is thinking about this topic, I encourage you to think more about it. It's, it's worth it. Right. We go happy into the weekend. Thank Absolutely. you for that, uh, Mikos. <laughs> and we're at the end of this podcast now. Unfortunately, uh, as uh, Connie said, um, but uh, you know we have to we have to end it. So I want to thank you very much for uh, to participate in this podcast. We will ha- wish you a very nice weekend with your children and you're driving you. around. Indeed, Thank and we you. cannot promise that we won't bother you again because this thing on history and finance has not left my mind yet. <laughs> well, I would really love to continue this conversation. Thank you very much for your time. It's such a pleasure. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. For people wanting to lecture themselves and others on anything fintech, global banking or innovation, I suggest you follow Miklas and McKinsey closely on Twitter, LinkedIn and at McKinsey.com. Curious which weekend music favorites um, Miklas brought to the podcast? Check out www.fintechcappuccino.com slash Miklas Dietz. Miklas, thank you so much for joining us here at the virtual kitchen table in the Fintech Cappuccino podcast. And thank you for listening to Fintech Cappuccino. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please give us a like or a review so many more fintech lovers can find us. Please join us again on Saturday morning at 9. We'll have the coffee ready just the way you like it. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend, Miklas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.